Hello and welcome to the Biology Society of South Australia podcast, where we bring you conversations in all things biology in our state. I'm your host, Bradley Bianco. This week's episode, we have Julia Peacock and Michael Stead. Michael is the president of the Nature Conservation Society South Australia, and Julia is the nature advocate for society. In this episode, we go into talking about what the Conservation Society does, how they foster public engagement in conservation, and some of the issues facing biodiversity in South Australia. As you may know, all funds generated by the BSSA go into funding our annual field grant. These grants help make conservation research in South Australia more effective. This year, the Biology Society and the Nature Conservation Society have pulled our grant resources, extending the reach of the grant funding program. And for this, we're very grateful. Julia Peacock, Michael Stead, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. You're very welcome. So let's get straight into it. Let's hear a little bit about yourselves what it is you do, and how you came to be with the Nature Conservation Society of South Australia. Well, yes, hi, I'm Michael Stead. I'm, uh, in my spare time, president of the Nature Conservation Society of South Australia. I was uh, studying here at the University of Adelaide in 2010 when someone tapped me on the shoulder and said that they needed a, a uh, extra committee member for the Nature Conservation Society of South Australia, and would I be interested? Um, I must admit I knew nothing about the organisation at the time. Uh, I learnt a lot very quickly and over a period of years now, what's that, almost nine years, fell into the role of president in 2014 and I must admit I enjoy every single minute of it. It's great and I get to work with a great bunch of people as well. Just before you continue, what, what is it that you do as president? What's your role? Uh, it's pretty broad brush role but a lot of it's just to ensure that the processes and governance of the organisation is ticking along smoothly to make life easy for our staff if, if that's all all running as planned and as it should. There's the strategic aspect, I guess, of the role, you know, where to from here, what are the big issues that we should be focusing our attention on, and also collaboration with other groups, projects that we might want to involve with. So basically, you know, it can be whatever you want it to be. You're all way. over the place. Yeah, all over the place. <laughs> and you, Julia? Yeah, I'm Julia Peacock, so I'm the Nature Advocate for the Nature Conservation Society, NCS as we call ourselves. Um, I actually studied here at the University of Adelaide um, in the early 2000s, let's say, and um, when we had a School of Environmental Biology, so that's my background. Um, I did my honours under Dave Payton, so looking at the effect of fire on small mammals and reptiles at NICAT Conservation Park. I've worked in a range of different places since then, but a lot of time as a bureaucrat working for the Federal Environment Department, so looking at the listing of species as threatened under the Federal Environment Legislation. And I, enjoy, I joined NCS about two years ago, so I am responsible for our advocacy work. Um, when I say that, a lot of people don't necessarily know maybe what that means. Um, so I guess I think of it as giving voice to nature across mm. a range of forums. I guess day to day my work involves writing submissions, doing a lot of written work, writing to, you know, when the government's undertaking reviews or there are other processes going on, so I do a lot of writing and also a lot of speaking, so attending meetings and consultations and so forth. And all of that is around biodiversity conservation and not nature protection. Cool. Mm. So we're going to go ahead and just say NCS, Nature Conservation <laughs> Society, um, for expediency. So you guys are all over the place. I see the logo and the name pop up in so many projects. So tell us about the organisation and where are you guys most involved in conservation in South Australia? 
Okay, well, if it's all right, I'll just give a quick potted history of the society. Please so do. It formed back in 1962. The first meeting was held in the living room of Anne Reeves' house. Those present included Warren Bonython and um, Bob Brown, not the one of the Tasmanian Greens that we know of, but uh, quite a prominent naturalist in South Australia. And their first order of business was to uh, seek protection for Deep Creek Conservation Park, and they are obviously um, ultimately successful. And once they'd done that, they uh, turned their uh, attention to other parts of the state that um, perhaps were worthy of being protected in a formal reserve. And so they, for about 20, 30 years, the society spent a lot of time conducting biological surveys around the state. And uh, someone mentioned a few years ago that roughly 60% of the reserves we have in South Australia now were surveyed at some point by the Nature Conservation Society prior to them being gazetted. There's a few other little little bits and pieces that are found going back through through the minutes. Um, we had an archivist working a few years ago that was sort of bringing a little bit of this stuff to my attention. When we started, there was no environment department, so it was minuted that the committee met with the government at the time and that they had a meeting about creating an environment department and that it was received favourably. <laughs> so, I mean, that's just incredible. Uh, and, of course, um, one other big feather in our cap is um, we were heavily involved with... Um, getting the Native Vegetation Act into place, which basically brought a broad end to large uh, wholesale vegetation clearance across the state. And South Australia was one of the first states to introduce that kind of legislation, is that correct? I believe so. Yeah. yeah. yeah, cool. yeah. Great. And today, in 2019, you've come a long way as, a, as an organisation. What are the projects that you guys are involved in now? So our um, we've got a couple of long-standing ones. The um, Mount Lofty Ranges Woodland Bird Monitoring Project has been, I think it's its 21st year this year. That was a citizen science project before citizen science was even a thing. So each year, a minimum of 165 sites across the Mount Lofty Ranges are visited twice by volunteer ornithologists. Um, a very avid group. Very keen <laughs> group of ornithologists. And they conduct a two-hectare timed um, search. And we've been tracking the status of the, you know, the woodland bird populations across the Mount Lofties now, like I said, for this 20-year this period. And that amount of data has really uh, allowed us to tease out the trajectory of a lot of these populations. So your listeners probably aren't, um, won't be surprised to hear that you know, the large generalist bully bird species are doing pretty well. But Noisy miners, magpies, ravens. Karawongs, things like that. Um, but some of our smaller um, woodland bird species, particularly the insectivorous group, not doing so well. So I guess the where to from here for that project is, okay, we've got 20 years of monitoring under our belt. Now we want to be careful that we don't monitor things to extinction. Mm. So it's now about, okay, what do we need to do on the ground to reverse or halt these declines? And so that's where we're turning our attention to now. So to go deep on that one, what are your, after 20 years of monitoring, you know, these big long-term data sets are incredibly valuable for informing management. What are your thoughts? What do we do? It's quite clearly restoration. There's not enough habitat in the system to support these populations. Mm -hmm. And when I say restoration, that is creation of new additional habitat in yeah. addition to what we already have. Yeah. There is value in conserving what we have already, but quite often the benefits that accrue from that over time are marginal or, or you know detected at long time scales and are not of sufficient size to arrest the declines that we're, we're witnessing. And depending on the organism you're talking about conserving, you know, I come from a, a, a botanic background. So if we're talking about conserving a, a population of orchids or, you know, 
a stand of rare eucalypts. Conservation of a one single reserve or multiple reserves in an area might be sufficient, but when we're talking about birds that use dozens or even hundreds of hectares of habitat, one single reserve, maintaining the biodiversity of that reserve isn't sufficient. So I completely agree. This broad scale habitat replacement in a way, you know, we need to replace the habitat that's been lost. It's it's additional to restoration. It also depends on how you define restoration, but Yes. Yes. <laughs> so we had Grace Hodder on the podcast quite a few episodes back now, and she told us all about the Great Southern Arc Project. And the NCS is involved in this project. What's what's your role there? So um, we've had a long history with conducting bushland condition monitoring across South Australia. We've been doing that, I think, since the early 2000s or thereabout. So we're looking, I guess we've got the vegetation component on that project. We're looking at the impacts that accrue from reintroducing these small mammals into these systems, and they positive and or negative. I'm sure there'll be some surprises along the way. I'm hoping that by and large it's a very positive impact, but who knows. So essentially over the course of the next five years we're going to be setting up some control and test sites. So the controls will be in areas where the small mammals won't be released and then we'll be comparing those with monitoring sites around the release areas and we're having to tailor our methods quite a bit. The traditional uh, vegetation condition assessment methods won't necessarily pick up the interaction with the small mammal component, component particularly as it relates to digging and disturbance of the soil. So um, we're particularly focusing in on plant recruitment and turnover of the litter, so forth, and how that relates to uh, water infiltration and soil properties and so forth. So will you guys be looking at nutrient turnover whether things are breaking down quickly with animals making diggings or is it purely looking at how the vegetation is responding to those things? By and large, in terms of cost effectiveness, the vegetation component's easier to do, but we certainly are in discussions with Grace Hodder and the rest of the Northern and York team about looking at those decomposition rates and so on. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's still a bit of a work in progress. So in the spirit of cross-posting, we recently interviewed Bev Maxwell and Colin Wilson from Friends of Western District's KI. I'm not sure what order these episodes will be released in, but they go into depth on what's being done with the development on Kangaroo Island, and we'll leave that for that episode. But what is the NCS's involvement with what's going on at KI? Um, Well, as Michael said, we've had a long involvement with Native Vegetation Protection, so obviously bringing the Act into force, the Native Vegetation Act, you know, it feels excellent that that brought an end to broad-scale clearance in South Australia. But there are a range of exemptions to that Act, so um, they're set up under the regulations and people can apply to clear based on those regulations. So we provide really regularly comment on the kinds of applications that people make under those regulations. So the development on KI is one of those. Um, So we, similar to to Bev and other groups, um, expressed real concern with that development. We think that it wasn't really the proper use of that regulation. The kind of scale of what they're looking at putting uh, putting into the park there is much bigger than I think what was envisaged under that regulation when when uh, it was written originally. Um, we're really concerned that even the development itself isn't consistent with the park management plan. So having that luxury accommodation quite a long way from the trail, the wilderness trail that it's supposed to be servicing. Um, we think that's inconsistent with the with the park plan and therefore shouldn't shouldn't be approved. 
So yeah, it's a really it's a really difficult and contentious issue. We put our comments to the Native Vegetation Council. They ultimately have approved mm -hmm. the clearance. So yeah, we continue to support and liaise with groups like like Bevs and um, there's a group called Public um, Park Playgrounds. Um, not quite sure how they interact, but you know I know that they are fundraising for a legal challenge to to the approvals that have been given to that um, to that particular proposal. So yeah, I think it's safe to say we share those views that it's 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 not appropriate and it should they should go back to the drawing board. Yeah. So for everyone at home listening, uh, check out the episode with Bev and Colin for for more on that. But I'm interested to hear about whether there are loopholes to the Native Vegetation Act whether there are ways that people wishing to clear native veg can get around our legislation? I think the short answer is yes. I mean, it depends exactly how you describe a loophole. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think the regulations, they were actually rewritten in 2017, oh, so right. just before I started. So I don't have much experience with the pre-regime, but um, I think there was an attempt there to kind of standardise and create a series of pathways, as they call them, to assessment and to make assessment under the Act and the regulations more coherent, if you like. I think um, they had gotten a bit disparate. So I think there were some things about that process that were good, but they do create a series of circumstances where people can clear, um, and you hear about stories where people you know, wouldn't have had permission to clear certain pieces of vegetation, but get permission to build a house, mm -hmm. and then they are then permitted to clear the vegetation up to whatever distance it is from the house in mm -hmm. order for bushfire protection, for example. So yeah, you could look at that as a, as a loophole, and we definitely work, continue to work with the department about, well, you know, how do we make these decisions, and what's appropriate, and how is the system actually working in practice, and that's a really complicated question that we struggle with. <laughs> and, yeah. On the topic of legislation, something that our listeners might not be aware of is that the NRM Act, the Natural Resource Management Act, is being repealed, or has been repealed, and is replaced with an act called the Landscapes Essay Act. And you seem to know a little bit about this, so could you tell me how does the new piece of legislation differ from the old piece of legislation, and do you think this poses a challenge to biodiversity conservation in our state? That's a really good question. The, the new piece of legislation is actually still going through Parliament and we've been involved in a range of discussions with parliamentarians on both sides about it. I would say the key difference is, is so, so this was a commitment of the new Liberal government and they were very keen to, in their words, I guess, streamline and simplify the natural resource management sort of system. There was a perception that perhaps it had become very bureaucratic, it had become too close to the environment department and not seen as something that community could interact with mm -hmm. um, really easily. So those were some of the things that this reform is trying to address. So there, there are various proposals as part of that new piece of legislation, for example, being able to elect some of the members of the board that makes decisions about where investment is, that being done by the community rather than ministerial appointment, for example. So I think there are some things about the changes that are potentially quite positive for our sector in, in some ways, so it's, it's qualified. Um, you know, there are some proposals to set up some new grant funding, um, so uh, one program for grassroots funds, so quite small grant uh, opportunities. For like for community, community groups. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But also a second fund about priorities, landscape priorities, and I think that's a really exciting, potentially exciting sort of opportunity to work more at that landscape level, so, mm. you know, at like projects like Southern Art. 
However, one of the focus, well, the focus of the new Act is around back to basics. So um, the Minister said we want to focus on soils and water and pest plants and animals. And for us as a sector, I think we've heard, well, hang on a minute, where's, where does biodiversity sit mm -hmm. in that um, spectrum? And you could argue that pest plant and animal management has positive impacts for biodiversity. Absolutely it does, depending on exactly what you're doing where. But we've been involved in a lot of discussions to try and have biodiversity sort of inserted as a mm. real focus. So it, to, in our minds, actually continue the current system mm. where biodiversity is included. And we think it makes sense. You know, if you're managing the landscape, yes, you manage soils and water, yeah. but you also manage the natural environment. All of those things yeah. are interacting. And from my view, biodiversity, it's, it's quantifiable. I mean, from the scientific perspective, it is quantifiable. And so using biodiversity as your metric for success sounds like a really sensible thing to do. And, you know, we should have moved away from this supposed back-to-basics view where we're looking at individual components. Whereas if you're using a metric like biodiversity, you're really taking the system as a whole and seeing how is this system working. So, Absolutely. That was a lot of the feedback that us and other groups um, have given through the consultation process that went on with that with the development of that piece of legislation and yeah literally in the last few weeks I've been at meetings at Parliament House with other conservation groups as well so the Conservation Council and the EDO who also been the Environmental Defenders Office have been really involved as well and yeah literally speaking to parliamentarians on both sides trying to put that argument mm -hmm. and redrafting sections of the bill so that it reflects what we think it, yeah, gives biodiversity the, the kind of profile that it, in our view, deserves within that system. Yeah. So, Michael, you, you said that the NCS has been involved pretty heavily with bushland condition monitoring, monitoring how our vegetation health is doing. And you've been doing this as an organisation for quite some time now. Could you give us an overview of what is the state of our biodiversity like? Well, unfortunately, um, the condition of our native vegetation is in a steady decline. Our uh, monitoring is uh, used as part of the state in environment reporting and has shown consistently over however many of those reports now that unfortunately, you know, weedy le weediness levels increase, you know, native diversities of plant diversities declining, overgrazing is, you know, an increasing issue. Overgrazing by? Uh, look, um, it depends a little bit where you are in the state, but certainly, um, you know, in the more temperate agricultural areas is primarily kangaroos. If you're up, I guess, around Port Augusta way and so on, it's, um, you know, feral goats and so on. I guess deer to a lesser extent. Yes, deer, uh, I should mention that as well. They're an emerging issue, particularly around the um, Adelaide area and down in the southeast. I saw a deer in the middle of the day in Warren Conservation Park. Oh, yeah. It was pretty yeah, crazy. <laughs> they're getting pretty, pretty brave. I think they've worked out that at the moment there's no real threat to them, so they're... Um, confident. And just before you go on, are these things continuing to decline despite ongoing attempts at management? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So year to year, the climatic variability is so extreme. We've had you know prolonged drought periods, prolonged wet periods, so it can be hard to tease out. But mm. with good management, you can certainly see the benefits. They do accrue. It does take time to... Um, I mean, I've attended a presentation recently where I think 10 years of monitoring had picked up a slight increase in species diversity and coarse woody debris and so on, but many of the other indicators that they'd used had um, no trend or no discernible trend at that, at that time mm. duration. There's clearly one, one issue we've got in South Australia at the moment. We've got this, this large reserve network, but not the 
manpower or the, the boots on the ground to, mm. to, to manage it. And that's uh, another issue that we've had discussions with, with the government about, you know, investment on in projects and, and restoration on the ground, ensuring that we're using our dollars wisely. I think the department just called for a thousand volunteer rangers or something like that. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. That's that's. I'm in two minds about that because in a way you want people to be connected to their their local reserves and you know actually engaging with the conservation of their local biodiversity. But you know you can't just handball all of the work and manpower to the public and have no input from. I mean the state is there. That's their part of their job. You know, is yeah. to, to protect these areas, and yeah. in a way, it seems like they might just be handballing it on. I agree, and I guess I'll use I'll reflect on another issue that I witnessed. It's very similar. If you recall, Tony Abbott six years ago announced the Green Army, yeah. which was a, a scheme to get people that were either seeking work or long-term unemployed to assist with you know revegetation, weed control, and so forth, and get them some qualifications at the same time. The real kicker with that was that. Oh, sorry, I should mention they were paid below minimum wage, but the the return on that was their, their free uh, education. But the problem was that that whole lot of people that were actually doing that work already suddenly couldn't compete because they'd been undercut by this government program and it sent a whole lot of people to the wall. So these, in a way, there was no real additionality. Yeah. They just replaced a whole lot of people that were already doing this work. And had skills and years of experience yeah, exactly so not to disparage people who wish to volunteer but no no there's a limit to what that's someone right. who doesn't have an extensive knowledge of plant id in the adelaide region there's a limit to what they yeah. can do and the, something i always reflect on at what point does volunteering stop becoming volunteering and almost gets to the point where it's an unpaid position and then you got yeah. you got a question is it abuse are you abusing these people are you using the overusing these people mm. Is this fair? And it is a fine line because, like I mentioned before, you, you need to engage the community and they need to have a, they need to have skin in the game. Mm. And how you foster that, I guess, is what we're trying to figure out. Mm. Yeah. How does the NCS try and foster the community engagement with biodiversity conservation? So for many years we ran a Walks with Nature program and we have two or three of those a year. Uh, essentially we'd pair naturalists and guides with members of the public for a gold coin donation and take them for a walk around their local park and just talk to them about biodiversity and whatever um, whatever questions they may have. You know, what's that thing on my roof late at night that's causing all the ruckus? Um, and just on that, um, a few years ago, we kind of changed that a little bit to focus more on some of the nocturnal wildlife within the city limits. A lot of people don't appreciate that, you know, there's a stat from Victoria that says within sub- Bourbon, Melbourne, you're never further than about 30 metres from a po- brush-tailed possum that's sleeping somewhere wow. on your roof or your garage or a tree. And so that's been quite successful, but it's phenomenal. You forget, it's we're reaching out to a different group with those nocturnal walks. Um, we had a, a guiding tour uh, last year, and there was a, a 61-year-old accountant lived in Adelaide. She'd had possums on her roof for 20 years, and they were driving her up the wall. She wanted them gone. But she'd never actually seen one. And so on this walk, she was able to connect with this this villain, as she saw it. <laughs> and all of a sudden, her heart melted. She was flipped completely 180 the other way, and she liked possums, and she, she wanted to conserve them. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's that, you're right, it's that connection. You've got to ensure that people are still have that ability. It's sometimes hard, I guess, with day-to-day life and city living, but they've got to have that connection to the outdoors and to nature. Mm. 
might just mention a, a project that's quite new for us or in that space called Amongst It. Um, so we're just running this new grant program um, that's really looking at connecting people to nature and celebrating that connection. I think perhaps for those of us maybe in the sector, we sort of take for granted that people have a connection with nature. Mm. But I think increasingly people, you know, with our busy lives and living in urban, you know, increasingly even living in urban environments, people don't necessarily have that or have that in the same way that, that perhaps we might think about it. Um, I think there are some efforts that are going on to address that in kids specifically. So you guys might know about the nature play type movement. Um, so yeah, NCS has just started supporting this grant program called Amongst It, which is really more for adults, I guess, around connection with nature and celebrating that connection. And yeah, so we've just uh, funded some, or in the process of finalising and funding some people to run projects around connection with nature and how we talk about nature and um, yeah, really opening up that question of how do we yeah how do we ensure that we're also doing that work as well as all the other work that we do in terms yeah. of conservation. Mm -hmm. So I've got a question. When you guys are running an event, whether it's a bushland condition monitoring thing or maybe you're partnered to do some revegetation, do you notice a demographic bias? Do you notice that there are uh, is a depauperate level of young people attending these kinds of things? And I worry about this because that's my experience. And if the older generations are the one that are really carrying the torch, when that generation goes, is there a new generation of people like them to take up the, take up the torch? What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I'd say I think the age distribution at most, most of the events that we host is probably bimodal. So you get the, the families with the very young kids, and then there's a bit of a gap. You don't get the, you know, the teenagers and the sort of the early 20s, early 20s kind of cohort. They're out having fun. And then... Um, <laughs> hey, man. Bush, <laughs> fun. I agree, but sometimes it can be a hard sell. And then you kind of get the um, later career uh, workers and retirees that are starting to think about the why and the how and all that sort of stuff. And so they're re-engaging, re I guess, maybe with some of their, their childhood experiences as well. Uh, in terms of the turnover, I think so long as you've got that demographic, that's, you know, you, there's no shortage of re retirees every year. There's always going to be someone that's sure. retiring. So long as that continues, then there will always be a, a ready supply of volunteers. But I guess the proviso on that is that they've had some prior connection with the environment and it's something that they, they're happy or willing to get involved with again. I'd certainly say, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I do more in the kind of meeting space, I guess, but a lot of the meetings I go to, yeah, particularly the volunteer component would be the older older mm. demographic and it does concern me I, I wonder about yeah what are the best ways we can connect and, and bring you know younger people on board is have things changed I think some of the models we have for, for organizations of you know really formal structures and meetings and so forth mm -hmm. were developed at a time perhaps where things are a little different and do we need to look at you yeah. know how, how we organize ourselves almost and yeah how we use things like social media but yeah, um, yeah other kinds of connection. I wasn't planning on doing this, but I feel like this actually segues into uh, another project I do. So in thinking about this, um, I noticed that that demographic lapse, and I have a brother who's 18, and he uses Instagram a lot. And I didn't have an Instagram account. So I thought, maybe if I use the platform to expose younger people to our biodiversity, maybe this will help. So almost every day this year, I've uploaded a photo of a South Australian native wildflower and I've put a little kind of micro blog about its biology, its ecology, its conservation significance and this is my attempt to to introduce people who might not otherwise be aware 
especially in an age where people don't tend to go outside, which alarms me, um, that we have, you know, we, as bad as things are, there's still so much out there that we need to value and, and care for. And you're not going to be able to do that unless you know it's out there. Mm. So this is my attempt to, to reach out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, I think in some ways, you know, this generation that's coming through now has been raised with a level of environmental consciousness that even I was It's unprecedented. Yeah, it's unprecedented. Yeah. And I think we should be able to capitalise on that. And I also think that we need to balance those messages. Like, yes, this, the situation is very serious and the, the decline has been extensive, but, you know, we can all act. You know, this is about hope and about love, about mm. what we value and cherish. And, yeah, I think that's a really important component of how we, how we talk about what we do. And it's also about fun too. So people have got to remember that, you know, despite all the serious doom and gloom stuff, you can still go out into a lot of parks and they're not that far from Adelaide or maybe you can go for a drive on the weekend. You can have an incredible amount of fun. Oh, yeah. And you don't need some tripped up massive monster truck four-wheel drive. No. You just, you can, you know, do light bush camping, walking, whatever. And look, some of those experiences that I had when I was younger, I'm sure have set me on the path I am with my career now. So, um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Deep Creek is 15 minutes from my house, and it's one of the most amazing pieces of bush that we have in the lofties. Yeah. So at the risk of not ending on the high note that we're on, yeah. <laughs> I'm curious to know, from your own personal perspectives, what are the most pressing biodiversity conservation issues that we face? All right, I'll jump in. Um, I'm perhaps not going to be quite as diplomatic as Julia might have to be, but um, look, undoubtedly, the Native Vegetation Act and the accompanying uh, significant environmental benefits offsets that accompany those. I think we should be very proud of those as a state. They, When they were created, they were, like you say, one of the first, if not the first, and also some of the toughest and most stringent. And every review we've had since, they've weakened it a little bit, sort of death by a thousand cuts. They even changed the formula. So there's a group of uh, accredited consultants that uh, the government uh, trains up and they go out and assess uh, native vegetation areas for clearance. Mm-hmm. They then use the data that they collect and plug that into a spreadsheet and there's a whole lot of calculations and metrics and that, you know some very simple mathematics involved. But effectively you can have with a just a change of you know the change of one of those calculations you, you change it by half a percent or whatever mm-hmm. that can reduce your liability in terms of offset by half something right. like that. And that has been, they've just done that recently. They changed one of the calculation metrics by half. And so it means that the liability has, the cost, the dollars coming in for offsets has been reduced. So by liability, you mean the amount that a developer would have to pay in significant environmental benefit offset money? Yep, exactly. the the cost of clearance? So it's pretty much just halved, just in the last couple of months. That's not great. No. So um, I'll call them SEBs from now on for short. Look, they're already pretty iffy sort of mechanism for, I guess, um, making good on, on the clearance that's occurred, um, pretty questionable. But to then also have them being weakened all the time is yeah, just not, not on, right. as far as I'm concerned. I guess from the society's perspective, there's, you know, we're very into evidence-based advocacy. There's no evidence that the offsetting system actually works. Right. We, don't, we don't have that evidence that mm-hmm. we get the outcome that we think and if anything the evidence we do have suggests that people don't even necessarily comply with the obligations if, if they're doing it themselves don't necessarily even comply with what they were supposed to have done under the legislation so yeah very concerned that it's yeah. it, do, it doesn't do what we think it, what we say it does 
and unfortunately there's still a lot of clearing going on. So I think uh, last year the, the uh, Environment Department released a state of the South Australia's native vegetation report and in the front end they mentioned that over the last decade we'd created 5,000 hectares of new vegetation. At the back end of the report they buried the fact that we'd cleared, uh, was it 50,000 hectares? 50,000 hectares? Of native vegetation. Now oh. look, I'm sure some of that, there's offsets for that, so they've Perhaps that a lot of that occurred out in pastoral areas and so on. So maybe some pastoral stations being bought for conservation and so on. But still, um, are we talking primary vegetation, as in vegetation that had not previously been cleared? Probably in most cases. Yeah, I'd say by and large. Yeah. So there's still this is what I mean. This is there's it's getting easier and easier to clear vegetation in this state. Yeah, it sounds like there are loopholes. There are loopholes. And also, often the offset is protecting existing vegetation. Even if you're doing a better job of protecting that existing vegetation, the overall amount of vegetation is, is reducing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. we've lost yeah, through clearance. Right. Yeah. Mm. That's alarming. Mm. Mm. It is alarming. We do a whole podcast so. on that, I think. <laughs> yeah. The sector, you know, we're involved in the environmental not-for-profit sector in South Australia. We've got to be ambitious and, and reach for the stars, but at the same time aware, you know, with the global trajectory we're on and so on, between now and 2050 is going to be a pretty rough ride. And it's um, kind of, as I see the role of our sector in some ways kind of um, holding the line, preserving what we've got, making sure we don't lose or step away from the achievements that we've got up until this point. I think that would be a good outcome, particularly as it relates to the Native Vegetation Act, if we can try and hold that in some recognisable form. And then, sure, like Great Southern Arts, fantastic. More of that, the better. Restorate, large-scale restoration, yes, please. Mm. But, yeah, we've also got to hold the line as well. well. Let's keep this train chugging along, Julia. Yeah, it's a tricky question. Um, I mean, there, yeah, there are a range of issues. I suppose I would mention climate change. As, yeah, you know, of course. It's, it's just obviously very pervasive and I think we need to really integrate into our thinking what does it mean and how, is it, you know, how, we, how should our actions be guided given what we understand the impacts to be. I would actually say monitoring. I think I, it still astounds me that we have such little information about our natural environment and that we're in such a poor position to really understand you know, the trajectory of threatened species and ecological communities, even common species, mm-hmm. um, that you know, our mapping isn't sort of amazing, like given the kind, especially now the kinds of technologies yeah. that are available, why is it that we don't have a really robust set of environmental accounts? Why don't we manage it like we manage our finances or other kinds of resources? Public infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. I, 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 yeah, and so I think that's something that society really contributes to. You know, we mentioned the value of those long-term monitoring data sets, and I, I think that's something that needs to be expanded and, um, yeah, much more focused. And I think for me, the third one would be what we were talking about: maintaining that that hope and that mm-hmm. connection, and making sure that, yeah. Uh, the people coming into the sector and the world, if you like, you know, understand it and can connect with it and value it in, yeah. in that way. I completely agree. That's probably number one for me. Yeah. That people are disengaged and don't value, not not as a fault of their own, but just as a, as a scientific community. Maybe we're not communicating well enough. I think that's a really good point. And on that point, if people would love to get involved with the Nature Conservation Society of South Australia, how can they do that? First of all, we're reviewing our, our membership structure at the moment because it's we've got quite a number of groups in South Australia and they all do their own, they have their own niche. But at present, there's not one body that can really grab the attention of the state government mm. and say, look, we've got X 
thousand members and they're yeah. all committed to our our position on this this issue and you know you got to take us seriously so we'll do some media soon about our revised we're trying to get it as low so effectively we just want financial supporters in inverted quotes of what we do and also we've got an AGM coming up uh, in September and there's um, for those perhaps uh, future leaders out there in the conservation environment sector consider nominating it's you know perhaps you've come from a you're just finishing um, your studies or whatever there's a whole host of um, other skills and um, expertise that you'll pick up from involving yourself in an organization like the Nature Conservation Society and you get to do some really cool stuff as well. Sounds like it. Yeah. So if people can want to find you, are you guys on social media? I know you have a website. Um, yeah, so we have a website and we do Facebook as well. Um, I apologise in advance about the uh, website. It's a little, little bit dusty at the moment. We're just about to revamp it. But um, yeah, just uh, bear with us. But uh, yeah, get in contact us however you, you can. Yeah. We'll, uh, and in the show notes, we'll provide links to all of these places where people can find you. Well, Michael and Julia, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you all for listening to today's podcast. This podcast was hosted by me, Bradley Bianco, and produced with my dedicated team, Christopher Jolly, Mile Tarrant, Adam Toombs, and music by Darcy Whitaker. If you'd like to support the production of this show, please consider joining the Biology Society as a member at www.biologysocietysa.com. If you're enjoying this content, why don't you check out our back catalogue? We release a new episode every fortnight.